Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Katie Couric, and this is Abortion, The Body Politic, Part 4. At the Supreme Court today, an historic upheaval. Roe is dead. The conservative court ruled 6-3 to three Friday to uphold a Republican-backed Mississippi law that bans abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy. And five of those justices went even farther, voting to overturn Roe v. Wade itself. And the question of abortion has been returned to the states. After the Supreme Court took away the federal right to an abortion on June 24th, abortion rights supporters flooded city streets from Seattle to Boston and right here in New York City. Already, a deluge of litigation is underway. 13 states have abortion bans in place designed to be triggered and take effect immediately after Roe fell. As of this recording, at least six states including Missouri, have begun to enforce their trigger bans to prohibit abortion entirely. But the anti-abortion wins are not all immediate. A judge has granted a restraining order blocking Utah's abortion ban from being enforced. At least two states have temporarily blocked enforcement of their trigger law bans on abortion. In the first three parts of this series, we traced how we got to this point because the Supreme Court decision didn't happen in a vacuum. And in fact, the dismantling of Roe is still one moment in the long arc of reproductive rights in this country. There's still a way to go. And part of that journey is understanding how we tell stories about abortion in the first place. Today, we're examining how abortion has been explored and reflected in popular culture and Hollywood. Whether we realize it or not, The movies we have loved and the TV shows we watch represent the collective imagination of our culture at any particular moment in time. Filmmaker Gillian Robespierre directed the 2014 rom-com Obvious Child, which is still held up eight years later as a movie that got abortion right. We happened to talk to Gillian on the day Roe v. Wade was overturned. Before we talk about the role of storytelling and conveying messages about abortion. Gillian, what was your reaction when you heard the news? Oof, yeah. Um, I'm an easy cry, so I feel like I'm getting just, you know, we we knew it was coming. It wasn't that, it was a total surprise. Um, But I was sitting in a room with my writing partner this morning, and she's a woman, and uh, we stopped. We just looked at each other and started crying. Um, and we couldn't, you know, finish our work, but I'm glad we had each other. Um, and it's devastating. It's gutted. It feels like after the tears came just like anger and um, pain. Um, but also I'm fueled by I'll show you. That's sort of why I even made this movie in the first place. So I do feel like after the tears and and I will work with the anger to to continue to figure out how to protest and how to get out of this muck. I'm curious what you think Hollywood's responsibility is and what it can do to to change hearts and minds and inform people about the importance of reproductive rights. Yeah, you know, I think just to bring it back to sort of the 
story of, of how I made Obvious Child and, and how I got it made. I made it outside of the studio system. I didn't ask for that permission. But um, the reason why we made it is because it, it, it almost felt like a dare. All these films that, that came out in the mid-2000s about um, young women having uh, unplanned pregnancies and they never even mentioned the word abortion. Um, and and it was um, unnerving to to watch those films, and it made it a silent enemy. And I just I've my whole life I've kept on waiting for a film where um, they made that they gave abortion a happy ending. You know I love Dirty Dancing and I love Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and those are movies that I watched as a child. And Dirty Dancing uh, kind of was a scary depiction. You know, it was true to the time, but I'm a little kid in the 80s and I was terrified. Uh, there was blood. She almost died. Um, in Fast Times, it was, you know, she Jennifer Jason Lee's character had uh, no reservations about making that choice, which I thought was cool. But my young brain only took away from that movie that losing your virginity hurts and guys suck. And um, it's cool to have an older brother. Um, but when I had my abortion, I couldn't help but think of all of these movies, these awful depictions. And um, yeah, I was scared. And did I think I was, did it cross my mind that I could die? Yeah, but that was not, you know, the reality is I had a very uh, nice abortion. I wasn't met with anti-choice protesters or mean doctors or unsupportive parents or partner. It it was not traumatizing and I was 100% relief. Um, and, and all of those movies, uh, you know, kind of scared me. What about Knocked Up and Juno, for example? Where did you see the narrative of those movies not kind of fulfilling your view of abortion? Right. Well, I, I'm also a huge fan of rom-coms. I, I love them. And I feel like those movies were the ones that were daring me to try to make a rom-com with an abortion that had a happy ending. Like, I dare you, you idiot, try it. You're going to fail because no one wants to see that movie. And so that's sort of what spurred Obvious Child was to try to make a film where the abortion is the catalyst for a budding romance and and to show that in a movie with an abortion can be both funny and poignant and entertaining. Um, and it could, you know, show- And positive. Yeah, no stigma or shame is, is involved. This, you know, Donna, our main character, had an abortion without feeling guilty or traumatized. And that was similar to my experience. Can you tell me a little bit briefly for people who haven't seen it, who probably will head to, to YouTube to see it now. But <laughs> but can you tell me a little more about the plot just so we can give people an idea? Yeah, so um, it's about a young woman in her 20s named Donna Stern, played by the amazing Jenny Slate. And Donna Stern is a born and raised New Yorker who's a stand-up comedian and her boyfriend dumps her and she has a one-night stand with the very handsome and uh, tender Jake Lacey. Uh, she realizes she ha is pregnant and she decides to have an abortion. And the movie sort of shows her reeling from the pain of a breakup and trying to uh, figure out will she or won't she tell Jake Lacey's character. It's never um, will she, won't she have the abortion. Maybe you want to tell him. No, why? Why? You don't owe him anything. You don't even know this guy. Maybe he just deserves to know that, like, this happened, that I'm not a psycho and I'm going to get an abortion. Um, and it's framed in a, you know, romantic comedy inspired by, uh, you know, all of the films from, from my childhood that I devoured. And, and, you know, the girl always gets the guy, but... Now she also has her future. Unfortunately, I feel like, you know, because we we missed, we we were we couldn't tell everyone's story in Obvious Child. We can only tell one woman's story, and 
Donna came from privilege and, you know, had all this support. She lived in New York, so she had access. And so, you know, the hopes were that other stories could sort of burst from this. I really thought that there was going to be this giant change in, in, in um, movies and the depiction of, of unplanned pregnancy and abortion. And I think there were, you know, there's some great films. Um, Eliza Hittman, who's a pal of mine, never, rarely, sometimes, always. I just watched Unpregnant yesterday for the first time and thought that was a really great film. You know, there's so many stories to be told. What now for Hollywood? Do you think this will create a whole new um, interest in films about reproductive rights? I sure hope so. It feels like we're too late, but I sure hope so because um, we have to continue to make art and tell stories that don't silence our experiences. Because I think um, I think silence is the greatest weapon. Um, but I also uh, don't think Hollywood and the studio system is built to take risks. I, um, I personally don't think telling these stories are risky. I think we've seen in a lot of films that these stories work well, you know, that can be both entertaining and also important. My name's Paige and I was 29 when I had my abortion. My abortion story begins with meeting uh, my boyfriend, Charlie, in the summer of 2021. We started dating and absolutely fell over heel, head over heels in love. Um, and practiced very safe sex, ironically. And we fell pregnant about two months in. It was interesting because when I read the pregnancy result, I felt excitement as my first feeling. I told him right away and he was excited. And so very, um, you know, a nice emotion at the start that ended up really challenging the decision-making process. Um, and really, I had very little to go off. I couldn't talk to my friends about it or my family. I'd never known anyone who had ever gotten an abortion. All I had to go off was what I had understood of it from popular culture references. And for me growing up, that was the movie Dirty Dancing, where it was essentially a girl living on the streets who gets butchered in a garage. I thought you said he was at real MD. The guy had a dirty knife and a folding table. I could hear her screaming in the hallway. Or Juno, who she gets shamed out of it. Your baby probably has a beating heart, you know. It can feel pain. And it has fingernails. Fingernails? Really? And one day, you know, we go pick up groceries. I'd be like, OK, nah, we can do it. And then in the next aisle, he would say, my job just doesn't pay enough. I don't see how we can do it. And then the next aisle would say, well, I'll, maybe I can go back to Australia. And then the next aisle would say, what? We can't give up ever. It was just so volatile in terms of decision making because what I'd learned from movies is that if you can do it, you should do it. I have a personality where if something makes me scared, I'll try to run, really almost lean into it, you know, whether it's moving overseas or pursuing a career that I don't think I'm ready for because of imposter syndrome or whatever else, or running the New York City Marathon. And what my therapist actually shared was she said, you know, yes, but you were, you had time to prepare or to get comfortable with the choice. And she said, you didn't turn away from this because you were scared. You turned away from this was because it wasn't a choice. Um, it wasn't your choice. I chose to go the medicine route because I wanted to avoid a procedure. Um, and, you know, going under, whether it's a general anaesthetic or a local anaesthetic, and this to me felt like I could do it in the privacy of my home. It would still have the same results. Um, it just seems like the more appropriate choice for where I was, at least, in the pregnancy. I think even though I had clear direction, it's still such an overwhelming moment that I had times where I was like, wait, did I write that down correctly? 
have I taken an hour too early, an hour too late? Because you just felt like you've got a lot of weight on this moment. Um, and then taking the tablets, it was like very, very, very bad cramps and it lasts for some time. Um, and you, you are kind of alone. You're alone while it happens and when you're going back and forth to the bathroom. And so it can feel a little bit lonely, but you kind of get to a point where you're like, I just need to get through it and I want it done now. I'm happy with my choice. I'm glad what I decided to do. And it put a lot of things on my radar, having children and having a family, potentially marriage and what that really means to me. And so there's gifts that have come out of it. And it's made me really, really, um, I can't ignore what's happening in America and I'm a part of it. And I don't want anyone to feel some of the bad feelings that I experienced. And if I can be there for someone, even strangers, I would want them to message me because I don't, no one's alone. It's actually shocking how not alone we are and how many people take this option. After the break, a comedy show about abortion? With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, how are you? Do you have tickets I can scan? At the end of April, I went to see a comedy show. It was at the historic Cherry Lane Theater in a quaint little pocket of Manhattan's West Village. The night we went, the show was still in previews, but that didn't matter. It was a packed house. Hi, everyone. If you're here for Allison Levy, the line starts right here. Please have your vacuum ID ready and I'll scan your ticket. Thank you so much. It was called, Oh God, a show about abortion. The comedian is Allison Levy. Thank you for coming to what my dad calls my special show. (laughs) No, my parents are super supportive. My mom texted me, kill it tonight. And I was like, already did. It's like, why there's a show? (laughs) I I had an abortion three years ago. Thank you. Um, I'm still trying to lose the no baby weight. (laughs) Been a challenge. (laughs) I'm not surprised that I needed an abortion. I am surprised I needed one when I was old enough to run for president. That was shocking. After the show, I headed to the green room so Allison and I could talk shop. I mean, oh God, how did you decide to do a show about abortion? (laughs) I mean, really? I... It kind of happened organically. I mean, obviously the experience happened to me. It was not planned. 
But as a stand-up, I'm somebody who just like writes about what happens and what I see in the world and things I think are funny. And I was like going through that experience and I was like, there's funny stuff here that isn't the normal stand-up abortion content. I feel like when people get up and talk about abortion and stand-up, it's usually theoretical or some one-liners. I feel like people don't tell the whole story because like no one really wants to sit in it that long because it makes people uncomfortable, even though it shouldn't. So I wrote a couple of jokes, bombed so hard every time I told them, like the first like five times, just get, yeah, getting up and doing a 10 or 15 minute set and in the middle, like trying to slip in this abortion material. And like, you could just, you could feel people, men crossing their arms, just like really closing down. And it's like, it's because I wasn't confident in it yet. I was still very, you know, new jokes are always kind of weaker just because you're not ready to say them yet in the way that you do when they're done. Also, popping them in the middle of a routine. I mean, Allison, that's sort of a hard thing to pull off, right? But I eventually got to a point where that wasn't that hard because I, like, had the jokes that, like, I had the confidence where people were like, she's bringing this up and then being like, we can all, she's going to guide us through this. Like, this is not going to be awful. And so I kind of started getting that material together and I had like five minutes and then I had 10 minutes and then I kept being like oh this and this and 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 I all of a sudden I had like 15 or 20 minutes that worked and I was like well if I could do 20 I could probably do an hour I mean that kind of insane ego logic where I'm like yeah I could do anything right (laughs) I went to Planned Parenthood in Soho in New York City the fancy downtown neighborhood because I'm a fancy bitch um (laughs) and I was nervous that there would be protesters just because in tv and film and the news I've always seen tons of protesters in front of abortion clinics. I'm like, I don't like wire hangers in my closet. I don't want them in front of my healthcare clinics, okay? (laughs) But I went and there were not like all, you know, there weren't all of the crazy things that you would expect. There were just like four old Catholic people standing across the street silently. Like, it just looks like that painting American Gothic twice. (laughs) But like less scary because they didn't even have a pitchfork. Like, I was just, thank God. There is a much more intimidating uh, force outside of the place Planned Parenthood in Soho in New York that is threatening women who are seeking abortions and that is across the street from Planned Parenthood. There is a luxury maternity wear store called Hatch. What? Who owns that? Mike Pence? Like... How did you determine what else you wanted to talk about? Because you talk obviously about growing up and it really becomes kind of a a full social commentary on your life in a way. Yeah, I guess the most natural way to tell this story is to like step back and look at it from the bigger picture of like, how do I feel about sex and abortion? And I started, the thing that's changed the most since I started writing it is like, what is the serious thing I'm saying? And and what is the, what is the, like, what am I trying to tell people by telling them about abortion? And it really, because it happened to me when I was so much older, the motherhood conversation with myself was so real in a way that at 25 I probably wouldn't have thought about that and it would and and it it impacts you know what people think your choices are less like if you're 25 and need an abortion no one's like and now she'll never be a mother like she's made her choice no you have a whole life of your fertility in front of you but when you're older it kind of is this definitive decision Women's identity and motherhood are like so collapsed in our culture that it's actually everything you do, every decision you make, everything you do is kind of connected to this idea and this identity. And that's terrible. But what's hard about managing these fears about fertility is that like there is no kitchen timer on men's fertility. Women's fertility is very set. If you are a woman, you are born with all the eggs you're ever gonna have forever. And if you're pregnant with a daughter, all the eggs she's ever gonna have are already inside of you, which explains a lot of our love of big purses. You know? (laughs) Just like dig around, you're like, all right, phone, keys, wallet, Kleenex, a Clementine from two and a half weeks ago, my eggs, her eggs. All right, let's go out, we're ready. (laughs) Men create sperm throughout their lives. Men are creating sperm at the rate that Everlane is creating unflattering pants, constantly. <laughs> like, okay, to put it in context, Richard Gere is 70. His wife is 36. We don't have time to get into all of the problems with that relationship, but when they have sex, 
She is the one that's worried that she's not going to be able to be a parent because she's too old. She is the one who's worried, the 36-year-old. Not the 70-year-old, which is crazy because in every other context, he's the one you're worried about. Walking downstairs, eating solid foods. <laughs> Knowing what words we culturally decided we don't say anymore. <laughs> Why did you decide, I mean, especially now, it's so prescient that this was an important piece of work for you to do and an important issue for you to tackle comedically. I just feel like abortion gets such like a heavy hand in pop culture so often and it is always treated as this like trauma and I think it is for many women who experience it but it's not for everyone who experiences it. And, and it I, doesn't have to be necessarily. To be. I think a lot of the the trauma is imposed Yes. By by society because of the the morality that is imposed on right. women who choose to terminate a pregnancy. Yes, and also the women who have to jump through way more hoops to do it. I mentioned in the show, but like of course I'm an incredibly incredibly privileged woman in the circumstance. I had resources. I was in New York City. Like I did not have to drive hundreds of miles or spend money I didn't have. Like, it really was a lot easier or, for me. Yeah, or not be or, able to... Or not be able to have an abortion. <laughs> at all. It, at, right, because you just didn't have access and you had no choice. Exactly. And so, like, so much of that trauma is based on the politics of abortion. But also, I think that there's just a lot of people with a narrative that looks like mine, and I hadn't seen it reflected in stand-up very often. When women talk about their bodies on stage, it's inherently politicized, I've heard so many men tell me so many things about their bodies into a microphone and it never once gets a reaction of like, <gasps> but like when women do it all the time, it does. And I've, so I've heard like here and there, people talk about abortion a little in passing just to be like starting that conversation. And I was like, I think I could tell the whole thing. Like I think laying out every detail makes it seem so much more mundane because you're like, Oh, and then you do this, and then you do this, and you had to get there like this, and that, like it, it makes it a a task or like an errand um, when presented or, or, or a procedure <sighs> yeah. like removing a skin tag yeah, or getting a colonoscopy right. or like any of the things that like we easily can joke about and depict as not politicized and not traumas, and so I thought I could do this probably. <laughs> I've said abortion more in the last two years uh, than I've said cumulatively in my entire life. And it does get easier. And even just talking about it like this or about the show with a friend, like I'm finding that like there's just ease to it. And like that's all that's my only goal for Well, my goal is like for it to be funny, first and foremost. And number two, to just be like, can't we just talk about this more? Can't we all just say this more? I, I had the incredible experience of many times when I first started working out the show in much smaller spaces where I was like got off stage and I was like well now I'm in the crowd and we're all just hanging out because there's 12 of us here um many women who would come up to me and just be like I had one too and just instantly like feel like from seeing it like the ability to share that in a way that I don't know how often they share that it doesn't seem like very often usually and I'm like, well, if that's what the show does, then that's like all I could possibly want it to do is for people to feel able to tell someone, a t me, a total stranger, or like someone in their life about an experience they had and not feel bad about it. More on abortion's portrayal in popular culture right after this. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. 
join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So what kind of an impact can film and TV have on shifting attitudes when it comes to heated social issues? You can look to gay rights for one example of the power of representation. I remember waking up and realizing we were in bed naked with each other. Right, because that happened 30 seconds ago! (laughs) But what about abortion? For more than a decade, a team of researchers out of San Francisco have been trying to find out. My name is Gretchen Sisson. I'm a sociologist at the University of California, San Francisco, in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Science. Um, And I'm the lead investigator for the Abortion on Screen program that studies how abortion and reproductive decision-making are portrayed in American film and television. We started the program back in 2012, and the idea at that time was to to start looking more at culture change and and, and considering how abortion was part of our pop, pop cultural conversations. One of the earliest depictions that we found is a silent film from 1916 called Where Are My Children? Um, It was made by filmmaker Lois Weber, um, who was herself a rarity at the time as as a woman filmmaker in in the 1910s. The plotline is a bit convoluted, but it's it's effectively about a district attorney who's prosecuting a physician um, who's been performing abortions and has a, a patient die. And in the process of this investigation, the district attorney discovers that his wife has been kind of helping people find this provider. And then he also discovers that his wife has had abortions herself, um, which has led to her um, inability to get pregnant. It's not a sort of revolutionary depiction by any means. It just was the first one, right? It's very, it's very stigmatizing. It talks about abortion as being very dangerous, which it could often be at the time. Um, but it also relied on um, a lot of racist and eugenicist ideas about both birth control and, and abortion. The first abortion story that we saw on television was um, the legal show, The Defenders. The Defenders aired on uh, April 29th, 1962. The episode is about the trial of an abortion provider. Mr. Preston, in the past eight years, over 20,000 expected mothers have come into my office, each one of them wanting an abortion. 20,000? It's like deeply stigmatizing, right? It sort of presents um, abortion as as the choice of very desperate women. Um, The provider is very clear that like, he doesn't do abortions for some women, for women who are, you know, too promiscuous and, and just don't want to deal with the consequences of their actions. On what basis did you decide to operate? Well, more than half of them were married. I refused all of them. Why? There was nothing preventing them from having children. I mean, this Defenders episode is absolutely a product of its time. It makes a strong case for legality, right? You're supposed to feel for this doctor. You're supposed to see him as a moral character, but you're supposed to feel comfortable with abortion, not because it's something that women need and and deserve as a right to control their own bodies, but because there's this paternalistic system of lawyers and doctors making these decisions. It's not really women making these decisions. By 1972, you have Maude. And Maud was actually an anomaly. I don't actually think Maud was reflective of its time. And like, if you look at the other stories that were being told around Maud, Maud is, is exceptional. It was one of the first stories 
that focused on the woman making the decision and having the abortion. You don't have to think that way anymore. It's legal now. You know, she's right. It's legal in New York State. You better give that a thought. I have given it a thought. And her daughter kind of makes a joke like, well, it's just like going to the dentist now. And then she, Maude turns around and uh, trying to convince her husband not to get a vasectomy. Um, she's like, I hear it's just like going to the dentist to get a vasectomy. Um, but Maude does end up getting getting her abortion. And, and there was a lot of protest at the time by the early 80s. It's a lot of this, like, both sides. One example that I think is really excellent, um, excellent in that it is very reflective of the moment that it in which it, it aired was Cagney and Lacey, which aired in 1985. And, and Cagney and Lacey were two uh, police officers in New York City. This particular episode, one in 1985, um, was about this character comes to the precinct um, because she's trying to access an abortion and um, she's scared of getting through the line of protesters outside of the clinic. And Cagney and Lacey um, kind of escort her there and get her through. They engage with the protesters. You actually never find out if this woman gets her abortion. Excuse me, ma'am. I'm an officer of the law and this lady's going inside. Now stop and think about what you are doing before it is too late. So it's not about the woman getting the abortion in, in a meaningful way. It's very much about her story creating this conversation between Cagney and Lacey. I was raised Catholic. This is a hard one for me. Oh, I see. Oh, you do. Women like Mrs. Herrera are wrong. They don't have a right to make their own decisions. I didn't say that. But there are other choices besides abortion. No one should tell me. So what you're seeing here is a lot of what was happening in the 80s. One, protesters, right? Like we're seeing this ramping up of a really active anti-abortion movement that's blocking clinic entrances, that's making the people seeking services uncomfortable. You see this like both sides, right? We have to be fair and balanced in how we're, we're talking about this. The most prototypical 90s story that I liked, John, is the TV film, um, If These Walls Could Talk. If These Walls Could Talk is sort of three, a story about three vignettes. The first one is a story about illegal abortion. Stars Demi Moore. Um, her character is a widow, a recent, very recent widow. She has been in part of her grief, having an affair with her late husband's brother. And she finds out she's pregnant. It's clear that it could not be her husband's child. Um, she seeks an illegal abortion. Anybody else here? No. Where's your kitchen? She has the abortion on her kitchen table, and she dies. Yeah. I need your help. <laughs> the next story is about a mother with teenage children who finds out that she is pregnant and she considers getting an abortion. Um, she doesn't really want to be pregnant. She, you know, her children are older. She doesn't really want to start over with the baby. I just want you to understand how important school is to me. Oh, come on, honey. I know that. No, you don't. If you did, you'd know that my quitting school isn't the answer to everything. Um, she really goes back and forth and weighs her uh, choices. I just wanted to let you know what I decided. I'm going to have the baby. And this was really typical of what we saw in the 90s, which we called the averted abortion. Now, this one was, wasn't like typical of an, an averted story necessarily because a lot of these stories were a character gets pregnant, considers having an abortion, decides not to get one, and then has a miscarriage, or then finds out that the pregnancy test was a false positive, right? So in those cases, the character doesn't have to deal with the consequences of choosing to continue the pregnancy. There's no miscarriage in, in that particular story, but because of the structure of the film with like sort of this one vignette that fades out, this next vignette that fades out, you, you move to an entirely different story. Basically, as soon as she decides to continue the pregnancy, that story is over. And then you have the third vignette is about an abortion provider who's played by Cher and with, um, with clinic violence and the, the provider being killed by the boyfriend of a patient that she is, um, that she's treating at the time. 
Can I... Can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. With all that you have to deal with, why do you... Why do you still do this? Because I remember what it was like when it was illegal for women to make this decision. I don't ever want to see those days come again. And also when a woman comes to me and says that she doesn't know what she would have done without my help, I know I'm doing the right job. And so you see her, like, literally after being shot, like, laying on the floor of, of the clinic. But what we really see in the 90s is totally consistent with this, like, Bill Clintonian idea that was prevalent at the time, which is abortion is between a woman and her doctor. And we're striving for safe, legal, and rare. When you look at, like, why is the screenwriter including an abortion in the story in the 90s, it was because the decision is dramatic. The decision is hard. The decision is going to bring a character to a crisis point for a relationship or, a you know, like, a, put them on a different path. Right? The decision itself is what the story was about. Um, and, again, this is, this is where we were in our politics. This is where we were in our cultural narratives. This is what we see on screen. When we come back filmmakers on why they want to tell new abortion stories. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The good news is filmmakers are breaking free of those old abortion tropes. Because of new streaming technology, there's frankly just a lot more movies and TV out there, and more content means more abortion stories. And those stories are starting to take some chances. Here's Gretchen's co-researcher, Steph Harold. So today, you don't often see a character who's kind of going back and forth. Like, will I have the abortion? Will I not? What am I going to do? I need to ask everyone around me. Um, For example, we see just in the last couple of years, we've had shows like Shrill on Hulu, where a character, like as soon as she gets pregnant, she knows that she wants to have an abortion, right? And ultimately, the, the abortion actually helps her see more clearly other things in her life. I got myself into this huge fucking mess, but I made a decision only for me, for myself, and I got myself out of it. The abortion has become less about um, um, like drama in someone's life about the decision and more about, oh, this is a moment where a character is investing in themselves um, and is realizing what, you know, what's going on in their life that they want to change or want to do differently. There have been a couple of movies that have come out in the last couple of years. I'm thinking of um, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, Unpregnant, that have tried, that have shown they're kind of like abortion road trip movies. Like one is very serious and one is like a buddy comedy. Um, But they show these young teenagers who 
need to travel long distances to get the abortion that they need because they can't in their state because there are these laws that make it so they need to share with their parents and they don't want to. It shows that they have to travel. They have to figure out how they're going to you know, miss school, how that will be explained. They need to get the money to pay for the abortion. Um, and lots of various hijinks ensue along the way in both of the movies. Some, you know, like gravely serious, some hilarious. So I think those have done a good job at helping audiences to see and really make visible those kinds of experiences. Okay, I know we're not like close anymore. True. And I'm probably the last person that you want to help. Accurate. But you have a car. Oh, there it is. Trust me, if, if I could just go somewhere in town or to St. Louis even, I, I wouldn't even go. be here. I'm Rachel Lee Goldenberg, and I am the director and co-writer of Unpregnant. The earliest abortion media memory that I have is Dirty Dancing. You know, when I first saw it, I didn't even realize that it was an abortion storyline. And then as I got older, you know, realized it. And, and had actually heard the writer, heard uh, Eleanor Bergstein talk about this and say that what she did was if you want to put abortion in a story, you need to make sure that it's essential to the plot so that it cannot be cut out. If it's a B storyline, a C storyline, it's going to get cut out. But if you make something essential for your A storyline happen around it, then you get to hold on to it. And so uh, that's what we did with Unpregnant is it's, uh, it's very much the A storyline. Unpregnant is based on the YA novel of the same name, by authors Jenny Hendricks and Ted Kaplan. Rachel's movie came out in 2020. 17-year-old overachiever Veronica gets pregnant and needs an abortion, and because of Missouri's restrictive laws, she must drive a 1,000 miles to get one, and she enlists the help of her wild ex-best friend Bailey, and chaos ensues. Well, it's one of those things, because my, when my writing partner and I were reading the book, and we said, can that be right? A thousand miles? And we, so we researched all the surrounding states. It just felt inconceivable that it would literally be a thousand miles. And then, yeah, it's 996 miles is the closest, closest access that Veronica could have. As a quick side note, amidst all the bad news about abortion in this country, I'm happy to report there is at least one improvement that would have dramatically cut down Veronica's trip. As of mere days ago, June 1st, 2022, Illinois no longer requires that minors seeking abortions get parental consent. You know, the, the intention of the book was, you know, to, to sort of show how difficult this journey is and to destigmatize abortion. And so taking that mission, but finding other ways to do that in the film was my mission. So, for example, uh, the, the scene with the abortion itself, where we go into the clinic, that was one of those things where it wasn't quite written in that detail or you weren't in the moment to moment with Veronica in the book for that. But I took a tour of a Los Angeles Planned Parenthood and they walked me through all the steps. And I, because my abortion was, um, was a pill. And so I hadn't been through the surgical process and I was like, Oh my God, I didn't know any of this. We need to show people all of this. You know, there's just shocking things like finding out that in under 10 minutes, you're in and out of the surgery room. It's actually not that complicated a procedure. So that sort of thing felt really important to me to bring bring to the table. But then, you know, the, the spirit of things that were in the book are ways that we just, you know, the things that we brought to the film as well, like just not uh, not having Veronica uh, make a pro and con list. You know, she knew what she wanted to do. She was clear on her decision. And the problem in the in the film is how do I get it? How do I get access? What was fascinating that I didn't anticipate when I started the process with Unpregnant was how I would become a vessel for people's stories. <laughs> I'm interviewing, you know, two different casting directors and they both are telling me about their abortions and I'm, you know, hearing sort of all the different perspectives. And that actually was hugely informative in the process for the film because I, I am so familiar with my own experience, but to hear other people's stories and really help broaden my understanding my own perspective was helpful for the film because when we did occasionally get the notes about should she make a pro and con list or how difficult should, you know, should this be for her, I could really draw from my own experience and defend how confident she was in her decision and how, uh, and how she moves on. And the, you know, the most difficult part for her afterwards is talking to her mom about it, not the fact that she did it. I'm not sure I'll ever understand it. <laughs> 
I'm sorry. What I know is I love you, sweet pea. I love you so much more than all of that. Okay. Okay. She's like probably a lot of people in America who who have a, an understanding of abortion as something that's bad. But then if there's someone in their life that 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 it touches, then all of a sudden they're not going to cut that person out of their life. You know, most parents love their kids more than they hate their choices. There's a perception that it's a hot button issue and people are on one side or the other. But the truth is that it's it's usually much more gray. And, and to me, that's an opportunity because it feels like there's a move. There's a lot of space to bring people over to acceptance. I am actually uh, working on the next abortion project that's in a totally different space right now um, that's not quite ready to be talked about. But it's, um, yeah, it's a totally different tone and totally different um, subject matter and sort of looking more critically at the history um, of abortion. You know, it's one of those things where it's like, is it anyone's responsibility? No, no one has to do anything. But this is a right that we're losing. It's like, it's fucking dire right now. It's crazy. And so, you know, anything that anyone can do in whatever space they're in, it's all important and it's all necessary. And while you don't have to do anything, it's almost like as much as anyone's doing isn't enough right now. We kind of all have to be doing everything. Um, so it's, it feels, uh, yes, very urgent. I think like film can help you understand understand things that are complicated, understand things that are foreign to you or to your experience. And so I hope that more people will be valuing film and making things that are sober and well-considered and well-researched because in the, you know, we have a truth problem. <laughs> and and I, I think the only way to address that is to be really rigorous in our storytelling and not just appeal to people's heartstrings, but to do the hard work of, you know, following A to B and allowing people to see for themselves what's really happening if they will look. My name is Dawn Porter and I'm a filmmaker. I primarily make uh, documentary films. Dawn Porter is part of a larger cohort of documentarians who are tackling the reality of abortion. Her 2016 film called Trapped looks at targeted regulation of abortion providers or trap laws. It felt like for people like me who were like pro-choice on paper, <laughs> that we kind of needed to see what was really happening. Um, and what was really happening is people who did not have access to birth control, who did not have medical insurance, um, who were on public assistance, were caught in a system where they were hoping to not get pregnant and hoping not to make this decision. And there were no faces to go along with what was happening in the clinics. And I thought people have this mistaken idea that it's irresponsible party girls, that people didn't give a lot of thought to the idea of abortion and nothing could be further from the truth. There was nobody whooping and hollering and celebrating. Um, the, the biggest reaction when we would ask people who were recovering and who agreed to talk to us was relief. I'm so glad that, that I'm so relieved, you know, they were with a, a doctor who kept them safe, that they, you know, the actual procedure also takes five minutes, five minutes. It is a clump of cells um, in most cases, in the overwhelming number of cases. I was shocked by that. And I thought people need to kind of see what it actually is, because there's so much rhetoric that happens that we are influenced by, even if we are pro-choice, that we kind of needed, I wanted to bring medicine back into it, but also some humanity. You know, I think one of the, the most powerful influences of film is the ability to um, generate some empathy. Um, but also, I think it was really helpful to destigmatize abortion. And at every single screening, without fail, um, somebody stood up and said, I want to tell my abortion story for the first time. And many, many people cried. And I think they were crying from relief that a lot of women had a lot of shame that they were somehow to blame for their abortion stories. When it comes to the greater landscape of abortion stories on screen, Dawn says there's still a ways to go. 
I think that that there are some, um, you know, there's some efforts and some awareness. And I think Planned Parenthood, Karen Spruik in, in particular, is part of her job is to help advise creators about what really happens in abortion situations. So I think that there are some bright spots, but um, I don't think it it's really um, still, I, I don't think it's realistic. I don't think we talk enough about the economics of abortion. I don't think we talk about the number of minority women who are making this choice. I really don't see those stories on TV. You see a young, attractive white girl who gets pregnant and is, you know, shouting her femininity. Um, but I think that that is, um, that's not a full representation of what's actually happening. Again, here's Steph Harold. We need to see characters who are ordering pills online, having their abortions themselves at home, surrounded by their loved ones, having their friend there with them Googling because a friend did this last month, instead of a, a legal abortion being this kind of um, dark thing that happened in the past. Um, we need to see how characters are going to navigate this moment where abortion is illegal again, but now we have the technology to get the abortion pills ourselves. Right, and what it means for them to do that um, medically safely, but have it be legally risky, which is what it is in real life. Right, um, We need to see characters grapple with, you know, if I'm caught, what will happen? Because we know that you know, people across the country are already being criminalized for, for managing their own abortions. And then I think it's just having an entire TV series that focus on abortion. Right. Abortion clinics or abortion funds, abortion travel networks. Like there's so much rich storytelling possibility there um, instead of having it be, you know, your one really promiscuous character gets pregnant and has an abortion and that's it. Like that's a, a wonderful story to tell, but it can't be the only one that we see. We need to see better representation of all kinds of people who have abortions on television and film, right? We need more TV shows and films, period, that focus on characters of color. But we also need to see those characters having their abortions and supporting their friends and family having abortions. Um, that, I think that is crucially important um, for representation, right? It helps everybody who's going through their abortions now feel less alone. Um, it helps um, normalize abortion and abortion experiences. Um, obviously, representation doesn't fix everything, but it's a small step towards people feeling not alone, people feeling secure and safe in their decision. My name is Jacqueline Gutierrez. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I work in sexual education and wellness, and I'm based out of Los Angeles. It's so weird. It's been 10 years now. I had an abortion when I was 20. I was in college. And I, I was in a relationship with my high school sweetheart. We grew up in Miami together and we both ended up going to college in Orlando. It was not a good relationship. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was very toxic and it was very back and forth. And what had happened was, is the condom broke. I did go ahead and take a plan B, but that only really stopped you from ovulating. And apparently I'm just fertile. So <laughs> I believe about, about a month, I want to say like three, four weeks goes by. I have my 20th birthday. I'm thinking everything should be fine, but I never start my cycle. So I grab a pregnancy test, try it, pee on it, and it immediately comes back positive. You know, at the time I had a uh, fairly freshly come out as a non-binary person. I think at the time I was identifying specifically as a gender and that I've always experienced dysphoria from having a womb. It's not really so, been so much of an external experience for me. Like I love, I'm cool with the way I look. Um, I'm cool with all that, but for some reason, just the, the concept of having a womb and the concept of being pregnant is like absolutely mortifying to me. So I communicated with the partner I had at the time, and we both were very much team abortion. We called, I'm nervous as hell. I make an appointment for the first one that was available first thing in the morning, like eight in the morning. I believe the soonest I could get one was about a week out too, which was not fun because I'm sitting for a week going, still pregnant, not, not too stoked on that. You know, I remember walking in, seeing protesters. They had something, there was, there was signage that was specifically um, like targeting or marketing a father saying like, it's your baby too. And when I go in, 
the person in the, whoever the receptionist was, was just the sweetest person in the world and was immediately smiling at me. And a lot of my anxiety kind of went down after meeting them. And they were playing Made in Manhattan in the lobby. Oh Lord, almost sat on your face right there. And I'm Puerto Rican, so I was like, wait, this must be a sign. J-Lo, yes, J-Lo, soothe my fears about this abortion situation. I chose to have a medication abortion specifically versus a surgical one because, well, one, it was cheaper by about $100. And this was not something that I had pocket money for. Um, and the second big reason for me is I was really uncomfortable with the concept of having someone just in my crotch. Um, I did not want to be exposed to strangers in that way. I felt really uncomfortable with that. So I thought that this would be a better a better option because I could take I could take these pills, I could go home, you take one at the clinic and then you take the rest home. Unfortunately, that same year, uh, something passed in Florida right before I went to get my abortion where you had to get a transvaginal ultrasound. That is an internal ultrasound. That is not the cute see in the movies, a little bit of jelly on your tummy. No, they put something inside you. And that is kind of the what I was trying to avoid. <laughs> that kind of situation was exactly what I was trying to steer away from by choosing medication abortion. But unfortunately, they wanted to, uh, I guess, make sure that I was pregnant, even though I was pretty damn sure I was pregnant. Um, and then when I went back for a follow-up in two weeks, I had to do that again. Um, yeah. <laughs> At the time, this is... This happened in two, 2011, I want to say around there. You know, at the time, there weren't a lot of conversations about trans people in uh, medical spaces, especially in healthcare situations. You know, there's no, you'll see it now, especially now that I live in Los Angeles, you know, you fill out your forms, there's a space for a preferred name. There's a space for your pronouns. I, I feel like now we're beginning to recognize that not everybody who has a uter uterus or needs, you know, this kind of reproductive health care is going to identify as a woman. So fantastic. But again, 10 years ago, not not a thing. So I had to go into this thing by myself and have conversations with, you know, very sweet staff. Really, I really appreciate how much they were trying to help me. But it was really difficult to go in for a service where every two seconds you're being misgendered and you're being talked to and about as if you are of an identity that you are not. Being misgendered is very much an act of violence and it's very upsetting to have to be in that space where you're already vulnerable, something I don't like being, and then have to navigate that. Uh, I didn't tell very many people about it either. I lived with my older sister at the time too and I never mentioned it. You know, clearly I was unwell, but I didn't talk about it. I didn't even tell my family till years later. For me, the experience was something that I just, it was in the way. It was just something I needed to get done um, so I could continue my life. I've never felt guilty about it. I've never felt, um, you know, ashamed of having had an abortion. It was just, it's a thing. It happened. I had my feelings and now I'm moving on. I did a fellowship uh, and an internship with Planned Parenthood specifically. And I, I, I'd volunteered with NARAL and other, other organizations, other reproductive rights um, organizations. And the experiences weren't, weren't great. Uh, I feel like even though that these people, you know, were definitely trying to fight for the same end game where, you know, obviously abortion access is, is fully there. The way that I was spoken to, especially then, was not acceptable. You know, it was always very much, you know, we have to make sure women have access to this first and then we'll cover nuances like, you know, uh, trans and gender not conforming people accessing abortion or people of color needing abortion. The narrative was always very much around cisgendered white women. And I just, I was always put off by that because it just doesn't, that's not how this works. It's never, it's never been successful to just aim to support one group and then it trickles down. That's, it's never worked. So I don't know where that idea came from. So when I was finally presented with an opportunity to be in a cohort where the majority of the people there are people of color. And eventually, you know, I was the only trans person at first, but eventually now, now there are other trans people talking about similar experiences. When I first heard that there was another trans person who was gonna be jo joining We Testify, I cried because I had not, I'd never met or spoken to any other trans person that's had an abortion. I know we're, I know we're there. I know we're out here. It's just, it's a completely different experience where you can actually interact with that person. 
when other people, especially, um, you know, youth come to me, other trans folks, other gender non-conforming folks come to me with, you know, you made me feel like, like I'm okay. Like I'm going to be fine. You know, we're out here. This is normal. Oh, my heart. I can't. It kills me, but it's good. It's good. Hi, listeners. For all of you who have been with us these last four episodes, thank you so much for listening. Two quick things. One, if you're interested, Allison Levy's comedy show, Oh God, a show about abortion, got extended. Find more about how to see it in LA or New York at ohgodshow.com. Also, how are you all doing considering all that's happened? I'd love to hear from you. You can call this number 1-844-479-7883 and leave me a message about what you're thinking or maybe the actions you're taking or even things you have learned or want to share about abortion. Your message might be included in a future episode, and we really will appreciate hearing from you all. That number again, one 844 479-7883. Abortion, the Body Politic is executive produced by me, Katie Couric, and was created by a small team led by our intrepid supervising producer, Lauren Hansen. Editing and sound design by Derek Clements. Research by Nina Perlman. Production and editing help for this episode from Julia Weaver and Mary Dew. And a special thanks to KCM producers, Courtney Litz and Adriana Fazio. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time we investigated the murder of Gail Katz, This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.